You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. We are in the third week of a series on work called Take This Job and Love It. And if you happen to glance at the order of worship, you see that the title of today's message is Work is Eternal. And you may have looked at that and thought, if that's the good news, what's the bad news? Uh, What I'm not saying is that work is interminable. You already know that. We're talking about a connection between what you do Monday through Saturday and something that's meaningful. Eternity itself. You have a job not so that you can bring money to church. You have a job so that you can be the church. Jesus Christ has commissioned you. He's given you a kingdom assignment in your work. It's eternal business, whatever you do. We begin uh, this morning with Ecclesiastes. It comes out of the wisdom tradition of Israel. It's Hebrew wisdom. Ecclesiastes is what's called speculative wisdom. It's wisdom that comes to us in the form of big questions. The uh, writer of Ecclesiastes is unknown to us, though he takes the figure of King Solomon. He refers to himself only as the teacher. Must have been a fascinating person at cocktail parties. Because the teacher tells us he has gone through a catalog of life's experiences. I have tried it all in the pursuit of meaning. Money, sex, power. Tried it all. And it is all empty. Vanity is the refrain. I've even tried work, he says. So I would have thought that maybe there'd be meaning in work. But it brings me up short. And he asks a question about it. How does your work hold up to time? Let's look at uh, this question. Would you open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 23? Uh, You'll find that in the Pew Bible on page 537. If you are a ladybug, you know how to find that. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. And uh, if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read this scripture aloud. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. I hated all my toil in which I had toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish. Yet they will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes one who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What do mortals get from all the toil and strain with which they toil under the sun? For all their days are full of pain, and their work is a vexation. Even at night their minds do not rest. This also is vanity. This is the word of the Lord. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. How valuable could work be that is as fleeting as the worker? We all know that we must die. What happens to the value we added while we were alive? We brought products to market. We served people. And yet at the end of it all, any value that would remain is passed on to who knows. This is the question that uh, the teacher is putting before us. You, you, you know, in verse 21, he says, let's, let's imagine somebody who has worked with wisdom and knowledge and skill. That word skill could be profit or success. A successful person. And yet at the end of their life, who gets it? You're kidding me. My son-in-law? That guy? I mean, we don't even know. He says, but whoever gets it may not use it wisely. She may be a fool. Think about the legacy of your work. Karl Marx, who wanted so desperately to help laborers, would have shuddered to see how Joseph Stalin made use of his work. Albert Einstein shook with anxiety about all the good work that he did, but the, all the evil purposes to which it could be used. What will happen? What's the point? Can you connect whatever it is you will do today, whether it's in your garden, in a boardroom, or in a nursery, with something that has lasting value? Is there an overarching context that gives it meaning? If there isn't, it's just about you. And why bother? It's vexing during the day. It wakes you up at night. And it's gone as soon as you are. Well, this is a cheerful sermon, isn't it? You can see why probably the teacher didn't get invited back to many cocktail parties once he started asking these questions. It is a dangerous question to leave unanswered. I've been reading a, a book called The Fabric of Faithfulness by Stephen Garber, who worked with university students for 20 years in the Washington, D.C. area, and he noticed it's a feature of modernity that there is this kind of disconnect between the jobs students pursue and the beliefs that they hold. How is it that they have a sense of what makes life meaningful, but when they look for their work, they just got to get a job and get it soon? He uh, cites an article about Albert Speer from 1944 in The Observer of London. You know Albert Speer uh, was uh, Hitler's architect. And he was not an ideologue. He was not a fanatic. He, he just wanted a job. But he could not connect the meaning of that job to something greater. And so... He ended up as Hitler's minister of armaments and of Speer, the observer of London writes, Speer is not one of the flamboyant and picturesque Nazis. Whether he has any other conventional political opinions at all is unknown. He might have joined any other political party which gave him a job and a career. 
He's very much the successful average man. Well-dressed, civil, non-corrupt, very middle class in his style of life with a wife and six children. Much less than any of the other German leaders does he stand for anything particularly German or particularly Nazi. He rather symbolizes a type which is becoming increasingly important in all belligerent countries. The pure technician. The classless, bright young man without background, with no other original aim than to make his way in the world, and no other means than his technical and managerial ability. It's the lack of psychological and spiritual ballast and the ease with which he handles the terrifying technical and organizational machinery of our age which makes this slight type go extremely far nowadays. This is their age. The Hitlers and Himmlers we may get rid of, but the Spears... Whatever happens to this particular special man will long be with us. He worked, but he could not find the connection between what he did and a greater narrative of meaning. Personally, I think the Nuremberg trials might have helped a little bit. But it's a question that all of us have to come to, and the sooner we can come to it in life, uh, the better we are. The problem is that you and I find there are two competing philosophies of work in our age. In fact, they're both furnished to us by the ancient world. Two narratives, two stories of wisdom uh, that help us define work. There is Greek wisdom and there's Hebrew wisdom. Let me just say a few words about each of these. Uh, Greek wisdom. The Greeks despised work. It wasn't just a problem, they despised it. For them, work was, get this, dehumanizing. It involved them with the physical material world. It reflected their captivity to their animal nature, they said. See, and and there should be something that distinguishes us from the animals. But as long as you worked, you did just what they did. You were a brute beast. The thing about the Greeks is they were dualists. There were for them two realities. There's the one that we experience, which is material, corporeal, subject to corruption, weak, a mere shadow of the other ethereal reality in which exist the forms, the ideals, pure reality. It's the domain of the immortals. It's eternity itself. In that space, the gods themselves never labor. And so when we work, we enslave ourselves to our earthly passions. We sink beneath the level of divinity. When we are unemployed, which was a uh, jealous, uh, uh, was, it was a goal, actually, of the Greeks to be unemployed, <clears throat> we were most likely to be like the gods and to rise above our brutish nature in contemplation of pure uh, thought. So uh, Plato tells the story, you know, uh, of his cave, and reality is around the fire. Uh, Illusion is the shadow of what we see in this physical world. Reality is invisible and eternal. 
This stuff is all just passing away. Plato's student, Aristotle, wrote, We are busy that we may have leisure. The acknowledge that work does have to happen for some people, but where it happens, it happens only as a means to an end. It's only instrumental. You have to work today to get to do what you want to do tomorrow. So live for the evening. Work through the week for the weekend. Work through your career for your retirement. Maybe someday you can flourish as a human being. Just not now. That's Greek wisdom about your work. But not so for the Hebrews, the Israelites. They had just the opposite view of work. See, with the Hebrew mindset, work is human flourishing. It, Work involves us with this material world that God had made and cherishes and loves. It's special for him and it's most special to us when we work. And when we do so, we reflect divinity. We interact in this gritty stuff of life with the glorious grace of God. In fact, Genesis 1 tells us we were made like God as workers in his image. It's who we are. We're happiest. We're most like our truest selves when we work. Wow, what a difference between the Greek philosophy and the Hebrew philosophy. The problem is that you and I and our views of work are more shaped by the Greek than the Hebrew. See, for the Greeks, work is slavery. For the Hebrews, work is service. The, um, to my knowledge, the foremost scholar in the book of Proverbs who has written the seminal work in two volumes is Bruce Walkie. And Bruce Walkie uh, sings in our choir. Thankfully, he's not here today to hear me uh, preach the sermon on wisdom. Uh, it's a little intimidating. But Bruce Walkie has this great definition for righteousness in the, in the uh, wisdom tradition. I want to share it to you. Think about it. It might even be worth writing down. Walkie says this about righteousness. The wicked, remember the wicked is a stock character in wisdom literature in Israel. The wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others. But the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. Do you catch that? Walkie uses an illustration of uh, driving on the freeway. And um, <laughs> there are these choke points in Seattle, I've discovered. And there's great temptation sometimes to whip past a line of cars and then move in at the last minute so that you can, you don't have to wait in that queue, right? And Walkie confesses, what I do when I do that is I am advantaging myself by disadvantaging others. That's what the Proverbs would call wickedness. If I resist the temptation to do that, if I were to somehow let somebody else in, unthinkable, and, and, and that I would disadvantage myself and advantage them, them, and that is what the Hebrew wisdom tradition calls righteousness. Isn't that a concrete way to think about your work? To disadvantage yourself so that you could advantage somebody else. But that's not the way we think about our work. No, it's the Greek tradition, the Greek wisdom. I have a, on my desk a little Dilbert uh, cartoon, and it's Dilbert's colleague who's uh, in therapy, and he's on the couch. And the, he's telling this uh, psychiatrist, um, you know, uh, I'm, I can't stop dr dreaming about work. And 
when I work, I uh, usually sleep. So I'm dreaming about sleeping and it's freaking me out. And she says, well, have you considered doing work? To which he replies, I want pills, you quack. Right? Don't help me do my work better. Help me stop working. That's what I want to do. I'll go to that seminar. Four-hour work week sounds about right to me. I'll buy that book. When I was in college, I had this growing suspicion that some of these older people were going to expect me to actually do something for which I could get paid. Among them, my parents. <clears throat> it was also growing in my faith in Jesus Christ. And it was my faith in Jesus Christ that I wanted to shape everything about who I was, including my work. But I had a problem. I don't remember who shared this with me, but I, I distinctly remember saying to me, George, there are only two things in life that are eternal. God's word and people. It's only two things, last, God's word and people. And I thought about that. Well, uh, you hear me say oftentimes, heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. That's an echo of Jesus in Matthew 24, 35. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Something about God's word is eternal. And, of course, we all know John 3:16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have Eternal life. People are eternal. These two things. The problem is, that's wrong. Not that the facts are wrong, but the thinking is wrong. It turns out that's Greek wisdom and not Hebrew wisdom at all. And the problem lies in the word only. Notice that this person had, for me, created a dualism. There are two tiers. There's a, a tier of stuff... Everything except for God's word and people. And that does not last. And then there's an upper tier of things. By the way, invisible things, I think, was the implication. God's word and souls. They go up into eternity. Do you see the dualism of that? It fit into a larger narrative that I was being taught about Christianity, I don't know that he was formally teaching me, but I was just absorbing it. And here was the story. The story was that God had made the world... People had messed it up, and so God was going to throw it away in a big ball of fire. But just before he threw it away, he sent Jesus down to rescue some souls, immaterial, to take them away, snatching them to an invisible, immaterial, eternal place called heaven. That's Greek wisdom. That is not biblical theology. That dualism with its disregard for all things created, has nothing to do with the Hebrew perspective, has nothing to do with the Bible. So I couldn't find a place for my work in that narrative. The New Testament gives us a very different picture. And I, I want to show it to you. Let's uh, turn uh, to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, in the Pew Bible, that's 956, page 956. Colossians chapter 1. Listen here as I read Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. As Paul writes the Colossians, he's just finished, interestingly enough, praying for them to have wisdom. And then he gives us this hymn, which scholars now realize grows out of the wisdom tradition. It's in the wisdom tradition, by the way, that uh, wisdom reflects God as an image. 
And in the wisdom tradition, you can see Proverbs 8, I think 22, that uh, wisdom is present at creation. And so Paul now, seeing the risen Jesus Christ, has a sense that Christ is the wisdom of God who was present at the very beginning. And as I read this, I want you to listen to the parallelism because there are two main sections here with a little bridge in between. and and, And each section contains this rhythm. Firstborn, for in him and all things. Listen. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things, in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, here's the bridge. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Second stanza. He, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning Firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This, this is a brief history of eternity from before it begins to its final day. It's a story of Jesus Christ. This is structured like an arch with two columns, two great doctrines, the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of redemption with Jesus Christ at the top, holding all things together. Jesus was there at creation. Through the cross, his death and resurrection, Jesus is the beginning of the new creation by which he has reconciled all things to himself. Three quick observations. First of all, Hebrew wisdom. God does not discard creation. He made it, he loves it, and he is not about to throw it away. He is reconciling it to himself in Jesus Christ. All of it. The immaterial and the earthy material stuff. Second observation, he does this through concrete work. It's not a cosmic battle that's fought in uh, the eternal ether. It is very concrete. It comes through the labor of childbirth. He's the firstborn. And it comes through the toil of the cross. By his blood, he has reconciled all things. All things to himself. And then the third observation... Oh, by by the way, do you not see him as the ultimate expression of righteousness in the wisdom tradition? The one who has ultimately disadvantaged himself to eternally advantage this creation. And then finally, uh, through his work, Jesus finishes, finishes the job. It's past tense. He has reconciled all things to himself. But he leaves behind a body of which he is the head, we read in verse 18. Hmm. Apparently, that which he has finished hasn't rolled out entirely yet. There is the implementation phase. And for that work, he has left behind a body, a community, 
You and me and those upon whose shoulders we stand for 2,000 years are the body of Christ through whose work Jesus continues his reconciling labor. Through your work tomorrow, whatever you do, he's about the business of reconciling this creation to himself. That's connecting with eternity. What does this mean? It means Jesus is the connection. Jesus is the link between what you do and all of eternity. In him you have the link to a greater context. I remember sitting with a very gifted young student many years ago in a cafeteria, looking across the table at him, and I thought, this kid has everything that one would want for any career one would want, except a theology of work. He looked at me and he said, you know, I, I, I want to be all about Jesus, but I feel like i got to kind of put that to the side and just do my work. Because every time I read the New Testament, I keep seeing Jesus in the gospel calling people away from work. He comes to Matthew and he says, leave the toll booth behind, tax collector. He comes to Peter, he says, leave the nets behind, come and follow me. He goes, I, I tell you, I have no call to ministry. I, I thought about being a pastor or a missionary. I just I don't feel any call to it. And my heart is, is, is with politics, economics, and public policy. See, what my friend Ben didn't understand yet is what Abraham Kuyper said, the great Dutch prime minister, that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. All of human existence, all of culture, Jesus says, that is mine, and I reconcile it to myself. Well, my friend Ben, his career progressed. I reconnected recently with his story, and it's been an amazing story uh, in the world's terms. Uh, Rhodes Scholar, presidential appointment, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, consulting with Fortune 500 uh, companies, and just recently appointed president of a, a small Midwestern college. But, and that's impressive, but what's really impressive to me is not his gifts and his opportunities. Who would live that life? That's rarefied. But what's impressive about Ben is what he's learned about his work, that in the midst of whatever he faces, he can respond not to his circumstances, but to Jesus. Where I've seen this is a few years ago, his wife had a stroke, a terrible stroke. And, and Ben was able to attenuate his career in order to nurse her and care for her. And be with the children as a father. And, and then, so in the home, he found a response to Jesus Christ. In, in the workplace, he had started his job as president of this college just a few weeks. When I'm reading this news article, um, a neighboring school about 15 miles away declares bankruptcy. This is this summer. And within hours, apparently, he had formed uh, a, a, a war room eating pizza through the night for days until they developed a plan to go and rescue as much of that university as they could. They increased their size by 50% in a matter of weeks because there were stranded students, coaches, administrators, and faculty. You don't have any reason to do that. 
But there was something inside of him that wanted to disadvantage himself to advantage others. And it was a response, I believe, to Jesus Christ. My friend Ben found his ministry, and he found it in his workplace, and he found it in his home. Paul gets very practical. In, in chapter 3, if you just flip the page, you'll see he tells us what this looks like. And he's writing to slaves. I figure if a slave can get it right, if a slave can find meaning in his or her work, then I suppose I can too. He says, whatever your task, this is verse 23, chapter 3, whatever your task, put yourself into it as done for the Lord and not for your masters. Since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you serve the Lord Christ. Like a slave, you and I will come up against principalities and powers, rulers and dominions in our work. They will loom large and we will feel small. There isn't a day that goes by in your life but that you feel the burden and the stress weighing on you as you try to care for aging parents, as you try to hunt for a job, send a hundred resumes to get a single phone call, as you move numbers across a spreadsheet or wait on customers in a shoe store, you feel the stress of it, the, the worry that's associated with it. Even a pastor wonders, and I wonder some days, is there any meaning to all that I'm doing? And I have to bring myself back to this right here. Do what you do unto the Lord. Do it for Him. Disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others. Because when you do so, you do exactly what he is doing in the world as he reconciles it to himself. And as you do so, you and I participate in the new creation. It is eternal work that will last for all eternity. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you made us that you love what you made. Sometimes we don't love what we are. Forgive us for that. Thank you that you made the world around us and you, you gave us an invitation to come and shape culture, to bring forth the resources of this creation for the benefit of humanity and the glory of God. We ask for perspective that we might sit with the teacher's question long enough to find a place in our work where we may not know its meaning, but we know who gives it meaning. We might respond in every moment and in a lifetime of moments to Jesus Christ, our reconciler, and send us forth from this place as agents of that reconciliation. We pray it in his name and for his glory. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.